Welcome to the Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices podcast. We acknowledge traditional owners of the lands on which the podcast is recorded and would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families and professionals. We hope the podcast builds on families' knowledge, skills and confidence when navigating early childhood supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their individual stories as a family with a child with a disability or developmental delay. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, VicTAS. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello and welcome. You're with Simone Dudley and today I would like to welcome Cara Ayres all the way from Cincinnati. Cara is an Associate Professor at the University of Cincinnati and the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Cara is also mother of three. Welcome Cara. Thank you Simone. I'm excited to have this conversation. I'd love to start Cara if you could introduce yourself, share a little bit about your family Uh, where you live and your work to set the scene for listeners today. Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, I'm the mom of three. Um, My youngest is six. And then I have um, a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old as well. And we built our family in um, an interesting way because we adopted my son in between my two daughters, but out of age order. So uh, my daughter is actually, uh, was my first child who's 13. And then when she was around four, we adopted her brother from China um, and he was seven at that time. And then our grand finale is is my youngest um, daughter, who is six. And so together with my husband, um, we all live here in Cincinnati, Ohio. My husband and I both have the same disability, osteogenesis imperfecta. Um, it's a type of dwarfism that causes our bones to break easily. And we both use uh, manual wheelchairs full time for our mobility. So um, our two daughters do not have disabilities. Our son has achondroplasia which is a different type of dwarfism, the most common type of dwarfism. Um, So he walks independently, but is also a little person. And so as you can imagine, we um, generate a lot of stares and attention (laughs) when we go out um, in public, but we, you know, talk about that and work through. And actually one of the um, things in our life that helps with that is my service dog, Rocky. Um, Three, four years now, I was matched with my service dog, who's a black lab. And one of the things that he he really does for us is he kind of attracts attention to him. So it kind of deflects stares in a way, which is nice. Um, he does a lot of other things to help me as well in terms of picking up things and pulling doors shut behind me. And so he's just an incredible gift to our family. And, you know, we are in, I think, most ways a typical family and just very, very busy time of life. Um, lots of activities the kids are in. And, um, and so that's kind of our hobby right now is following their paths. And I'm also very busy with work. I am trained as a psychologist, um, but I don't see clients in a traditional sense. I work in a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. UCEDD. And one of my major interests is parenting with a disability because it's, um, you know, a, a much needed issue to lift up. And I've always been intrigued by the work happening in Australia because in many ways, your country leads research efforts and kind of just the conversation and talking about parents with disabilities. So I was excited to have a chance to talk about it today. Oh, well, that's really interesting feedback, Cara, and quite an incredible introduction. 
There's so much to sort of unpack, but I know that you're working on a very interesting project at the moment, and I wonder whether you might share a little bit about your pilot project supporting parents with disabilities to develop birth plans. Very interesting for the mm -hmm. listeners to hear a little bit about this work. Yeah, I'd be happy to share about that. Um, so as part of my work, I am a co-investigator with the National Research Center for Disability and Pregnancy. So the project that I um, am piloting and leading right now is related to birth plans. And a lot of the literature around birth plans was interesting because we found that um, it was mixed results about whether they were that helpful if people were trying to use them to kind of predict how birth was going to go, because we know whether you have a disability or not, there's so much that's unpredictable about birth. But when we dug into what the benefits of birth planning were, it was things like feeling empowered about the choices that you did have and being able to talk through with someone, you know, what it was like to be pregnant and be navigating healthcare, And just to have that opportunity to talk that over with another person who has been in that situation before. So this intervention is um, intended to be led by a peer facilitator. So, um, so for example, I meet with participants over Zoom, kind of like we're doing today in terms of just having a conversation. And by the end of a, a couple of sessions, usually two to four, we build out what their birth plan looks like. They have things like, you know, I am deaf, so I need an interpreter or, you know, ensuring that um, if I am a person who I have worked with um, pregnant people who both are much taller than the exam tables are or much shorter. And so it really strikes me the way we have this piece of critical medical equipment known as exam tables, but they don't meet everybody's needs. Um, and so if we have adjustable tables, suddenly we can lower them, we can raise them, we can extend them, we can shorten them. Um, and so, for example, making sure that people have what kind of accessible medical equipment they need to get the best health care. We also have instructions for providers on these birth plans, things like, you know, ask for my consent and confirm um, or like in my case, I had to be really cautious with anything that would restrict my movement because my wrists and ankles and things are more likely to fracture. So these are the types of things that we have on a birth plan so that people can advocate for themselves what they need and hopefully they and their baby can, um, you know, start this new journey together uh, safely and, you know, in mm -hmm. one piece. And I'd say the last thing about these plans that has been really impactful to me is that we have a place to talk about stigma that they face related to pregnancy and related to judgment that they've encountered as a disabled person who's now pregnant. And so sometimes that comes, unfortunately, from within their own families and friends. Sometimes it comes from outsiders. You know, I work with one individual who she has a colleague that she considers a pretty good friend that she works with and she's nearing the end of her pregnancy. And um, one of the comments that her colleague made was, well, what are you going to do to prevent this from ever happening again? Kind of this assumption that, you know, she didn't intend for this to happen in the first place, but these are not uncommon experiences of stigma that many disabled people who are pregnant face. And so I think that's also what sets our intervention apart is that we introduce that topic. And if, if people haven't faced stigma, then of course we don't look for it, but we say that, you know, this is a place that we can talk about that and where can you get support for that? Um, and who are your safe spaces in your life that can help you through what is definitely a, you know, stressful event in terms of giving birth. 
and just listening to some of the examples that you cite, Cara, just some of those things just seem um, obvious, yet I imagine completely not obvious when you're in that position experiencing a yeah. disability and being in the maternity ward at a really challenging and chaotic time. And it's got me thinking about, I wonder how all hospitals are. I mean, I, I find myself in a very regional location where managing childbirth is a challenge just because of the distances and access to expertise and hospital care. So I can imagine on top of all of the challenges that go with childbirth, so very important work. It does depend so much, um, you know, on some regional differences in how we approach. We actually have had participants from Australia before. And one thing that strikes me is the access there to doulas and midwives seems to be a nice facilitator at times because it can give people um, another person on their support team who really knows their disability-related needs. And I, of course, I haven't worked with enough folks from Australia to compare and contrast with in the detail that I would need to. But um, in a lot of cases, women in the U.S. who become pregnant and they have a disability are immediately referred to high-risk um, specialty fetal medicine practices and clinics. And that in itself can really reduce the choices that you have. So I actually was working with a woman um, and I was asking her what is typically a pretty basic question of, you know, is the plan for your birth a vaginal birth or a C-section? And she stopped and she said, you know, nobody's asked me what I would want. I don't really know what they're planning. And so she had been given such little choice or mm. even talked to. I mean, it was very much as though her body was this vessel, mm. you know, that they were planning, um, but they weren't even informing her. And so she felt very disempowered. Whereas in contrast, actually, one of the participants um, in Australia that we've worked with has a disability, but planned for a very thoughtful home birth. And that has been the only perspective. We have not seen that same outcome or, or even planning process for anyone on the U.S. side. And I don't know if that's because the high medicalization that high risk mm. pregnancies or, or whether they're high risk or not, you know, pregnant people with disabilities often get funneled into that high risk. So it's fascinating to think about the differences in our healthcare systems, too, and which can be better for people with disabilities. Yes, I can appreciate that. And the self-advocacy that must just feel so critical. Cara, you spoke a little before about being at this busy phase of your life with your children and your activities. What are some of the activities that you're participating in as a family? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of spanning the the age span. You know, we've got my youngest who is six and is now really interested in you know her own kind of things. You know, she's been the little sister for a number of years watching. Um, in her case, her big sister is a competitive gymnast. So she, you know, has been kind of waiting, when will I be old enough to do various sports? And so she is right now in um, competitive hip hop, which is a whole new world to be a dance mom. Um, <laughs> she and her sister also do softball, which is a outdoor sport, which we've found ways around, you know, oftentimes the fields are not accessible, there will not be a sidewalk. And um, so luckily, we found some great technology that helps navigate our our wheelchairs to those events um and then all the way up to my um oldest you know he has been working his first job for more than a year now at a local amusement park there and so he's figuring out like what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do like long term you know he he's yeah. like uh, I, don't, I definitely don't want to do this forever um so <laughs> it's been uh i think as a parent too you want to make sure that sometimes you're able to fade into the background while they're doing their Having thing their moment. Yeah. and that can 
Yeah. And that can be more difficult when you have a disability. So we try to plan for things like navigating fields and knowing kind of where we're going so we can be aware of the accessibility. We have also learned to ask for support when we need it. There have been some things that my kids have wanted to learn to do that I just simply cannot. Um, ice skating comes to mind. So when, you know, when they, one of um, my now 13-year-old daughter had a real interest in ice skating around six or seven. And so, you know, I asked, I made sure to ask one of her aunts if the next time that, you know, they went ice skating, would she take my daughter? And and she did. And luckily, Hannah didn't want to become a you know, like full-time <laughs> ice skater, but she wanted to try that Experience out. And, that, you know, that yeah. was fine. When they were toddlers, there was definitely more of a need for me at times to get some outside support if we wanted to go to a big open space where I needed just more help mm. juggling them. But now that they're older, it's more about those experiences that I want to, you know, make sure that they get. And I think we're all better off by being more connected and interdependent is something that our family tries to live by and that none of us are truly independent. I mean, we don't live mm. off the grid or anything. Yeah, yeah. So trying not to have my kids, you know, view needing some help sometimes as a bad mm. thing or a weakness. Cara, imagine, you know, Saturday sport and you're trying to navigate a field. You just spoke about how difficult that is for you if there's not a pavement, which is, I guess, an example of a barrier to inclusion. And as a disabled parent leading a family, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the barriers and the impacts that this has for you and your family around participation. Yeah, definitely the physical accessibility can and is a barrier. Sometimes people will just not remember per se, you know, they'll invite a group somewhere, you know, the parents are also expected to come and then it'll be this awkward moment of, oh gosh, sorry, we didn't, you know, think or remember or, you know, and then we've got to figure it out. But I think that the attitudinal barriers are more challenging and I think more hurtful. And I remember that my daughter, Hannah, was our first and for a while she was our only. And I remember that, you know, I was trying to kind of find my way into like, how do moms make friends with other moms and how do you connect? So there was a, a friend of, you know, she had a little friend in swim lessons and clearly like they were hitting it off. And so the mom had invited us if we wanted to go to a playground to play. Um, and we were supposed to go like on a day after their swim lesson. So we got to their swim lesson on the day that it's supposed to be. And the mom was all of a sudden very nervous and said, you know, I spoke to my husband and he just doesn't think it's best. And so I'm going to need to cancel today because I don't have a good back. So if I needed to pick her up or, you know, and I, I think at first I was, I was thinking, oh, did she just want to reschedule? And then she made it clear that like, no, she had spoken to her husband and like, they didn't think it was a good idea. And so at that point, I think just being early in motherhood, I was pretty hurt wondering, you know, is my challenges being accepted as a disabled person, are those challenges going to negatively impact my child? You know, is my child also not going to have friendships and not be accepted? And they still hurt when these instances pop up when I just have like a hard time connecting with another mom because I could feel like she's very distracted by my disability. And that's like, even if we're not talking about it, like mm -hmm. that's taking up all the space in the room. But I have a little bit more confidence now that disability in a lot of ways is a litmus test. And that I want to surround my family by accepting open-minded people. And if people are, are really having that much difficulty, then there's usually other aspects that they won't be a great fit with our family anyway. Yeah. So I feel a little 
a little better about it. What it looks like now is still just kind of like intrusive questions sometimes to my kids, my older kids, parents, or people in the public will think that they can find out details about our family by asking them things like, oh, do you have to help your parents a lot? You must have to really help your parents. And, you know, my kids are onto that. So like, not only do they tell me when people ask that, but they, they know what you're insinuating and that, you know, they are like overly burdened with caregiving and, and, you know, sometimes it just looks like we had a one individual in our community. My daughter was, um, and when the weather is nice, she rides her bike right around the corner to practice. It's less than a five minute bike ride. And, um, this person said, you know, are your parents going to make you ride your bike when it snows? And she, she was like, no, they bring me almost every day. Like, I just like to ride my bike when the weather's nice. And so there was definitely this insinuation of like, you know, do your parents really know what they're doing? Do they keep you safe? So that's kind of what those barriers to inclusion look like for us today. And you can see that, I mean, even just the amount of examples I gave and things, mm. the physical barriers are surprisingly so much easier to figure out and overcome. It's changing people's mindset that's much more difficult. Mm. Thanks, Cara, for sharing that. I know that you love to create a culture that celebrates disability and I wonder how you sort of consider that in your family. What are ways that you create a culture that celebrates disability within your family? I think we aim to ensure that we are both talking about how the story of disability is told outside of our house and also of how beautiful the disabled culture is around the world and how unfortunately many people miss out on that beauty because they believe, you know, the lie that disability is bad and should be avoided and that our world would be better off without disability. We think quite the opposite. So we celebrate, you know, historical figures and artists and, um, you know, makers that have disabilities. And I ensure that they have connections of people, you know, when you think about the idea of we all need, you know, mirrors and windows. We need windows to look through and see people different from us. And we, so we also make sure that our kind of circle of family, friends and things like that includes people with different kinds of disabilities than ours. Um, one thing that I love about disability is that it helps us push past boundaries. You know, we have friends from around the world with disabilities and also, we all need mirrors. So we need to look in a mirror and look back at someone that does look like us. And for our family, that includes deep connections with little people of America and also World Dwarf Games. Um, so ensuring that my son has connections with other people with dwarfism. Um, in some ways, you know, mom and dad don't count because we're, you know, mom and dad. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And my daughters, you know, they are two people growing up in a family where they're the majority has a disability. Mm. They do not. So they're a really interesting minority. So I want to make sure, too, that they have connections with other kids like them that are non-disabled. But um, in many ways, you know, they are very much impacted by ableism. When we go somewhere that is just completely inaccessible and can't get in, neither can they because, yeah. they, you know, they're their parents you. can't. Yeah. So, Yeah. And um, and when their parents face discrimination and, you know, very fortunate in my case to have a career that I love and that it, it works for me. But you can easily envision, you know, employment discrimination and things like that happening and then the trickle down effects on children, whether they mm. have a disability or not. Mm. So ensuring that my um, girls have connection to 
there's not a great word for it in the, you know, in the broader disability community, there's not a great word for their role because they both happen to be a sibling and like ally doesn't really capture, you know, their connection to disability is always going to be deeper than allyship. But um, yeah, so disability is a beautiful thing in our house that we celebrate and um, we look for others to join us in that celebration too. Oh, I just bet that's infectious. And I love some of the examples that you cited, Cara. Um, I have a question because I'm just so interested in you personally. You said you trained as a psychologist. What was your sort of career and study pathway? What drew you to psychology? Yeah, I envisioned a much more like traditional psychologist life for me in terms of seeing clients. I was very interested at that point in teenage girls and the challenges that they face navigating that difficult developmental period. And I really didn't understand in even my graduate school, I earned a PhD, I think, before fully understanding that you could integrate disability scholarship with an academic career in the way that I have done now and found myself here. I didn't have a lot of mentorship of other disabled professionals who kind of now have helped me see that um, advocacy and work in disability policy is not just kind of a side job or a night job. And that's actually what I was doing. I was envisioning that, okay, I'll be a psychologist during the day. And then I've always had this passion for disability advocacy. So I will continue to do that kind of as my volunteer job. But quickly, when I had my daughter 13 years ago, I realized like, oh, I do not have a night job anymore. That's not her. Um And so that really led me to speed up the process of figuring out that there's very much a place for academics who study disability. I wanted to break free of that um, medical model view of disability, but I just didn't really know what that looked like. Even when I look back at my dissertation, you know, I was very much still thinking of disability in, you know, a symptom checklist kind of way. I, I was fascinated about how disability impacted our psychosocial development. So I was starting to like get around to framing things in a non-medical way, but I just wasn't aware of um, how many opportunities are are out there to do work that I get to do today. So I'm very grateful I did find it. Just took me a little bit of a a weaving path to get there. Yeah. And I guess no doubt many people that you work with feel also grateful that you're on their team uh, with your perspective and commitment. So, Cara, thank you so much for joining Family Voices podcast today. I've really enjoyed hearing your story, learning a little bit about your family, um, particularly learning how you celebrate disability culture in your family. I think that's something that we might talk a little bit more about in the wrap up. And yeah, wish you all the best, Cara. Thank you. This was a fun conversation and thank you so much for having me. As a disabled person, Kara has integrated her passion, disability advocacy, with her academic career. This has led Kara to work on some interesting projects as example by the pilot where she describes supporting pregnant people to develop birth plans that integrate specific disability needs. Kara spoke about putting the disabled person at the centre of the birth planning process and how empowering this can be. Kara shared what it was like for her family to participate in community activities and how the physical access, managing wheelchairs, can be problematic. For example, at softball games, checking paths and access. 
Cara added that whilst the physical barriers may be problematic, the attitudinal barriers can sometimes be the most challenging and hurtful to navigate. Cara describes leading her family through these challenges and considered attitudes to disability like a litmus test to open-mindedness. It struck me that through Cara's work, her research, her family support and community participation, Cara is constantly advocating and building the capacity for those around her to support people with disability through inclusion practices. Cara spoke about the promotion of a culture of celebrating disability in her family, sharing stories of disability around the world, including historical figures, artists and makers. Celebrating a culture of disability looks like including a diverse group of people within their social networks, people that may have the same disability type or not, as well as also supporting her non-disabled daughters as the minorities in the family. Cara has given us much to think about today. Significantly, attitudinal barriers to disability can be the most impactful. Thank you, Cara. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe to your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more understanding of what type of conversations are helpful to you. More information about this podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.